Hello, and thank you for joining us today on State of Our Workforce. Each month, we will take a journey together into the heart of workforce innovation and explore how to build an equitable workforce. My name is Michelle Wilson. I am your host. I'm the Director of Evaluation and Learning at the National Fund. I'm super excited to kick off our new season of State of the Workforce. We're talking about the anthropology of work, and we think about the anthropology of work. We think about anthropology as the study and science of humans. When we think about the anthropology of work, we're just extending that to humans in the workplace, understanding humans in the workplace. Um, so this year, we will be exploring the anthropology of work, and I could not be happier to be, than to be joined by Dr. Angela Jackson, founder of Future Forward, and Dr. Rachel Watkins, associate professor of anthropology uh, at American University, to kick off our conversation. Hello. Hello. How are you all? You're great. I'm super excited. I, I can't really contain myself because I think we're two <laughs> really super smart people. And I, um, we've been having some conversation. I'm, I'm ready to, um, to jump in. You all ready to, you ready? Ready to jump in? Ready. Fantastic. Yes. So <clears throat> I'm going to start with you, Rachel. Um, as a biocultural anthropologist, some people are thinking like, wait, what? You have a biocultural anthropologist on this conversation talking about um, work? Um, but, but there's a reason for this. So so what can you tell us about the impact that labor has on us as humans? Let's start. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And thanks again for the invitation. So um, there are three layers to the way that I study the way that labor impacts the human experience. So the first one is as a skeletal biologist, I literally study the biological toll that strenuous work takes on the body and in turn how that impacts an individual's well-being along with the well-being of the groups and communities to which they belong. And so with that said, I also study how limited work opportunities and the toll that they take on the body are tied to a broader suite of inequalities, social and economic inequalities that impact the well-being of individuals and groups. And then the third layer of my work addresses how these same socioeconomic inequalities that impact work and biological and social well-being in the past impact people in the present. And in my particular field, it shows up in terms of how Blacks and other people of color, poor people are overrepresented as research subjects, but underrepresented among researchers. And so I'm going to ask you, and so again, I didn't frame this as I should have, and I forgive me for saying this. This is our Black History Month edition, in case you have not guessed that, <laughs> um, based on the conversations we're having today. So I'm going to invite Angela back into the conversation because I think Angela and Rachel's work, it marries really, really well, which is why I think it's a really great conversation. So Angela, I'll let you hop into the conversation. Yeah, I just want to pick up where you just ended, Rachel, when you talk about where over-indexes Black communities and being researched and under-indexed and researchers. If you think about, I think, the National Science Foundation back in 2022, when they looked at um, all of the people who got their doctorates who are researchers, you know, 6% of them were were Black researchers, right, As in comparison to what we think about 13.6% of the population are Black folks. And and, and why does that matter? 
Um, and that matters when we're thinking about what gets to be researched, what issues that we're going to look at, um, what questions that are going to be asked and how the questions are going to be asked. We, you said, you mentioned there's a lot of research that's being done in black communities, right? We're over indexing there. Um, we need to know if there's trust between those communities and the people that are researching them. Um, the data says that there is a lack of trust. Um, and then there's nuances, right, to to the problems. And there are, are intricacies and multifaceted social problems. When we're talking about entrenched problems, let's say around work, right, and access to work. And um, some of the experiences that Black folks have in work. And so it's helpful when you have a researcher that might share that lived experience, um, either hard-won professional or something that they've grown up with or witnessed somebody in their community having, to have that background knowledge to help them shape what their research could be. And that could be in conjunction with a larger team. Um, so the thing I want to jump in and say about that, that's really important, the National Fund, we did some research this summer on um, workers who are most impacted by occupational segregation and job quality. And one of the things that we really needed to pay attention to um, was and thoughtfulness and intention is how we actually went into communities, how we um, made sure that we resource folks and that we were um, not being extractive in the process. Right. But that it was uh, it was it was equal parts of giving and not just um, taking. Actually, we wanted them to benefit more than we did um, from being out in the, in the field. And so those are the things that I think and it just matters when you're when you're doing the work. Um, Rachel, I was, gonna say, I was just going to say, I completely agree with that. And, and why that's important, you know, one of the reasons why I found at Future Forward um, Institute to do research around work um, and communities was because our communities are the real experts. And so as an institution, how do you compensate compensate someone for their expertise? And when we think about big consulting firms, what are their hourly rates that we pay for experts? So it is important about how we are in relationship with our communities and how we're compensating them for their time and their expertise. Right, right. Yeah, it goes beyond giving like the $10 gift card or the, the Subway lunch Um, um gift card for folks to have lunch or something like that. Like, is that really showing value um, to folks, Rachel? <laughs> I would love to add, yes, I can't help but add that, you know, the in my field, um, the protection of African descendant burial sites, um, as well as the ethical treatment of human remains is, is very huge in our research and community engagement and the importance of community engagement is an important part of that. And that has everything to do with the priorities around what Angela mentioned, not being extractive um, in communities and recognizing communities as the, the experts. So mm -hmm. that actually pertains to research in my field too. It's research and it's also analysis too, right? Absolutely. So more about that. Yes, it's yes. one thing to ask people what their experiences are, and then we come up with the insights. How are we checking back in with those communities right. to make sure that we got it right, or if there was nothing missed? And and that's again one step that we can take if we want some of this research to actually be more actionable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So one of the things I, what I appreciate about 
appreciate about having you both in this conversation is I, I, I want to start talking about um, paying to like the social determinants of work. I mean, Angela, that was a phrase that you coined um, a few years back. And we at the National Fund have been thinking about that and holding it up and looking at like, so what does that mean? What does that mean in terms of our work? But Rachel, your work as a biocultural anthropologist really is a layer beneath Angela's, right? And so, um, and I don't know if people really think about it like that, but can you speak more about what that actually means? Yeah, well, I guess in a way it's a layer beneath um, Angela's work in terms of it being historical mm-hmm. and providing information about the kind of historical foundations of the inequities that we see today. And I know that we all, at least the three of us, are in agreement that you have to know that history to understand how you arrived at whatever problematic situation that you're in and how to address it. Mm-hmm. Um, and tying this into the lived experience piece, including our work with communities and it not being extractive. I mean, people who have a deep historical knowledge and a deep historical um, understanding of these trends are really vital to coming up with ways of changing things and changing things sustainably. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why, for instance, among um, descendant communities, one of the things that I would like to see and that I'm attempting to work toward is making sure that we kind of have researchers that come out of descendant communities, that we don't maintain this kind of disconnect or this binary between researchers and, and communities. Their expertise should be recognized in terms of a kind of longitudinal commitment to changing the research workforce, if you will. And I see that as a really important part of getting rid of the occupational segregation that exists in the academy. Oh, yes. And and for me, the way that I coined the phrase, the social determinants of work, I was actually working on a project that was based on reskilling workers for the future of work and really thinking about what are the skills that they need, the durable skills to be successful, to have a sustained career and to have family sustaining wages. And as I did that work, I was talking to a lot of the folks, the intermediaries that were supporting these workers, um, departments of transitional assistance. And one thing I found at this time, and this is back in 2017, 2018, was that um, it was, easier to reskill people and get them into that job, it was harder for them to sustain those jobs because life would happen. Their mm-hmm. car would break down. They didn't have childcare. Um, they may have been sick or, or they were housing insecure. And what I found after many of these conversations, literally hundreds of them, and then doing further surveys and research is like, these were the barriers that actually kept people from sustained employment. And the problem was a lot of the energy in you know, research and philanthropy um, in workforce at the time was about reskilling and upskilling. And you know, I had a colleague who said to me, you can't skill your way to equity. Right. And a lot of some of these root cause issues, you know, how do we address the fact that black communities and poor people in general are spending 26% of their after-tax income on transportation alone. Right. You know, that has nothing to do with skilling, right? What happens when they can't depend on the local bus that's not on time, which means that they're being late to work and it's three strikes against them. And so when you start thinking about it uh, along with skilling in our field, okay, yes, skilling has to be there and 
Equally important are these wraparound supports. Let's name them. Let's talk about how we do innovations in that so that we can better serve the people that we, you know, purport to serve, if that sure. makes sense. Sure. Sure. And then that pings back again, Rachel, to your work in terms of how that actually shows up in the body. Right. And so Absolutely. like it's a, it's cyclical. Right. Right. And so when, which is why when you think about biocultural anthropology, like why that's important to the conversation. Right. Understanding there is a toll that may not be like physically visible to um, a person, but it shows up in the workplace. When you talk about workplace trauma and all of those kinds of things. So, so yeah, really important. So I want to to this, um, we've had a conversation earlier um, in our prep around um, the right kinds of research. What is that? What does what does what should we be paying attention to, or what should we be researching? Um, we know that we need to have more people of color in the research community around labor, but what what are we what are we talking about? Well, I think in my case, it's really important, and I try to emphasize the importance of looking at integrated data points. So for the purposes of our discussion, not looking at labor in isolation and kind of looking at it as, as one social factor among many that impacts uh, the biological and cultural well-being of a community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so... I'm going to ask you to go a, 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 a layer deeper. So in practice, what does that look like in practice? In so practice, for me as a researcher, that looks like kind of looking at and observing, which is why I do the human skeleton, for evidence of the toll that mm -hmm. inequality takes on the body. But pairing that with archival data, with mm -hmm. actual statistics mm -hmm. and historical records, that speak to the cultural experience of it. I mean, and that's that's part of how we come up with these biocultural understandings of the tolls of, of inequalities the on the body and communities. The toll, so that that's chills when I hear like the toll inequality takes on the body. Yes. So I'm gonna ping to you, Angela, and and ask. So obviously looking at the social determinants of work, but how should workplaces what does it look like to respond to that and our work as workforce development professionals, right? I mean, outside of taking care of the social determinant work, determinants of work, but how do we bring that into the conversation that there is a physical toll on the body when, when you think about inequity? So one thing I, I talk to the, the clients and businesses that we work for at C-suite is about one is acknowledging that there is a toll right? That two people can have very different experiences of work, um, depending on the, their level, their socioeconomic background. Like we have to have just a shared set of facts just around that, mm -hmm. right? You know, again, the CEO probably doesn't think twice about how he gets to work every day, right? But we know that a worker who has challenges is thinking about not only how they're going to get to work, but how they're going to get their kids to daycare even before then, right? Um, and so acknowledging that there's, you know, this disparity of experiences, mm -hmm. depending on socioeconomic background, depending on race, depending on gender and naming that, and then thinking about what are the policies and practices that we couldn't put into place to re reimagine this, not so it works better, um, 
for those people who have most of the barriers. And I just want to say, and I have to say this because I'm, I'm writing a new book project on this. It's not about DEI per se, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about doing this in service of like firm level outcomes. It's not just a, a nice to have, it's an economic imperative. When you have workers who are thinking about where am I gonna sleep tomorrow, how can they show up and do their jobs? You know, a month ago, there was a New York Times article that talked about a social worker who was in Washington who was sleeping in a car with her daughter and her dog. Um, she's a social worker, a government job, right? That's supposed to be a good job. How is she gonna be in the mindset to advise someone else if that's how she's waking up in the morning. So these are things that we, we have to address. And what I put forward in this forthcoming book are just some practices that businesses can employ that does well by their employees who are having these, these lived issues and lived realities that, that can be addressed and ways that businesses can do that to build the conditions so that folks can actually share, show up and be engaged with work, right? Without acting like the lots of the other things that are going on aren't happening. Sure, sure. Um, so I wanna ping to one of the things that, um, uh, I mean, we shouldn't just talk about it during Black History Month, but one of the things that we know to be true is about um, our public workforce system and the role of slavery. Like slavery is the oldest public workforce system in our country, right? And so, um, Curious to hear you all um, talk about or dig into um, this a little bit more in terms of how elements of that workforce system still hold true today. There are so many ways in which it still holds true. And in fact, there's uh, there are multiple bodies of scholarship. Um, someone named Sadia Hartman comes to mind. Um, there, there are multiple bodies of scholarship in which people are kind of looking at what's being called the afterlives of enslavement. And the reason why is because even though enslavement has been abolished, um, the elements of social control, the elements of social inequality are still very much so in place and show up among other ways um, in the form of workplace inequality um, and occupational segregation. So um, the, the ties to enslavement are really central to developing that deep historical understanding of these inequalities that we say are really important. And you know, one of the reasons why I'm so happy to be a part of this conversation is because sometimes we as biocultural anthropologists or bioanthropologists struggle to make these direct connections between the work that we're doing and the historical trends that we're showing and um, their relevance to contemporary conversations. And so I'm so grateful to be able to make those connections here for that reason. And I'm glad we're making them too, because I think people, when we when we say that, people are like, tied to, to slavery, how could that be? Um, but we, and that's why we need to know our history, right? Because a lot of those foundations and legacies of who created modern business management, a lot of that structure that we are, you know, that we lean on today that are taught in business schools have these same links back <laughs> to slavery. Let's talk about, you know, efficiency. Um, if you think about the factory system of training one person for one job, it's widget in, widget out, widget yeah. in, widget out. Let's work them until, you know, they pass out or they go away and we replace them with someone new. Everybody's 
replaceable. Um, that's one of the most harmful legacies. You know, what? how that manifests today mm -hmm. is that in terms of like professional development and how we're spending and investing employees, you know, our highest wage earners at the C-suite, they receive 86% of the professional development dollars. Wow. And when you talk about entry-level workers, they get safety training and they get right. compliance training. Right. Um, that manifests in us believing that we shouldn't even invest in frontline workers because we don't have the ability, they don't see the ROI that these folks can learn and grow. And, and when I talk about the project I'm writing on, I'm saying, what if we reimagine that? Right. What if we said these people are indispensable? What if we invested in them and said they could have a longer term career here? What would professional development and training look like for an entry level employee? You know, right. I argue it'd be more like the financial sector when they bring in new cohorts of grad school students who they train, they invest in, they mentor right over time, because their position is that one day that these are going to be the folks who are going to lead our firm. How do we do that in retail? How do we do that in hospitality right. and other sectors that take those learnings? Very good. Um, so I just got a, a ping that we are um, we have about 10 minutes left. So I want to create space in our conversation today really to talk about the call of action and in, in, in making sure that you each um, have an opportunity to address that. This is a conversation, as you know, we could probably go on and I would love to go on forever and ever and ever. I hope you guys are as excited about this conversation as I am because it just really makes me happy to be a part of this. Um, I feel like this is going to be our next book project together. Yes, absolutely. Right? Yes. Delving into this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm down for it. I'm yes. down for it. I'm down too. Yes. Uh, so, Rachel, I'll start with you. What's the call to action? What's the call to action on this? The call to action is unsiloing research. So, not doing any research about lived experience and isolation. And also, recognizing the community as the expert, members of communities as experts who are working alongside you um, versus under you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes actually recognizing them as an expert over you. Those are yeah. two big things. And I think you do that a lot in your research as well too. I, I you know a lot of your publications, you acknowledge um, the, the the folks in the your communities, your descendant communities as lead researchers as a part of your work. That's something you do as well. Absolutely. Some of our best research questions and analyses indeed come from members of the community. Uh, Angela, what's, the, what's your call to action? My biggest call to action is that we need to fund Black researchers. You know, when you look at the National Bureau of Economics, you know, black uh, principal investigators, these are people who are leading the surveys, who are like deciding what needs to be researched. Um, all things considered, receive less funding than white principal investigators, right? So that's number one is a challenge. Number two is a challenge is the amount of money that's being funneled to them. Number three is when we think about doctoral students who are coming up and, and how they're being mentored and taken under their wing. And then I think the third thing that is just critical for us to look at, and we've talked about this all along, is really thinking about how are we bringing communities into our research and truly looking at them for their expertise, not just as subjects being researched, but also their analysis. You know, how are they seeing around the corner? and making meaning of these insights, there's a lot that we can learn from them. But if we can't leave for anything, we, we need more 
again, diverse led research teams. We need people who are researchers who have proximate experience. Um, because they come up with solutions that maybe we haven't thought of. And we, we talked about this earlier, and I'll give you one, one, one um, example of that. You know, there was an issue, this is probably a decade ago, we talk about, you know, health disparities and Black women and weight. And it was always the answer was around, you know, there need to be appetite control. You know, Black women just need to exercise. You know, it took groups to really look at the intersectionality to understand the lived experience of black women to come up with better solutions. And, and there was one nonprofit that I want to shout out. It's called Girl Trek. You know, they yeah. got a million black women walking. And what was so important about this, it wasn't just about appetite control. It was about how do we build community? This is what works for black women to do this in community. And when those black women start walking, they start seeing other issues in their community that they could raise, right? And actually, you know, individually work on, but also advocate for policymakers and additional research. So again, it's not just about researching these issues and these communities, but it's really taking that intersectional lens and having some proximate leaders who are on the front, you know, seeing around the corner for us and bringing others along. Yeah. Um, that's fantastic. And I think what's, I, again, so uh, deeply appreciative of this conversation, because as we think about this work again at the National Fund, you know, we have our three big organizational goals that all workers have the resources needed to thrive. All jobs are good jobs and race does not dictate employment outcomes. So everything that was discussed here is really germane to how we um, get to those goals. So, uh, so digging in more on the research is something um, that we're really interested in seeing um, move forward. Um, so we are at the end of time. Um, deep gratitude to um, Angela and Rachel for joining uh, me here today on this conversation. Um, uh, as I always end with my dear um, friend Jay-Z, at least in my mind, um, <laughs> you could have been anywhere in the world, um, but you are here with me. And we appreciate that. Uh, until next time, uh, we will, next month is our um, Women's History Month. So join us next month as we continue our conversation on the anthropology of work. Angela, Rachel, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. State of Our Workforce is a production of the National Fund for Workforce Solutions. This episode was produced by Josh Enoch. The music in this episode is produced by Alex Productions. You can find past episodes of State of Our Workforce on our website at www.nationalfund.org. State of Our Workforce is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you may listen. State of Our Workforce airs live monthly on LinkedIn. Follow the National Fund for Workforce Solutions on LinkedIn to get updates about the next live recording of State of Our Workforce.